Hey, it's Guy here. Did you know that kids are way more likely to eat apples if the apples are sliced up and put in a plastic bag? There was actually a study that showed how apple consumption in schools increased by 70% when apples were sliced. And the reason? Well, it's actually quite simple. Because if you want to encourage certain behaviors, you just have to make it easy. So on this episode, you're going to hear a lot of ideas about how small tweaks can have huge impacts. It's called Nudge, and it originally aired in June of 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Here's an idea. If you want to encourage people to do something... Make it easy. This idea comes from economist Richard Thaler. It's best said to the tune of the Eagles song. Even without the song, it (laughs) works pretty well. And this idea works on humans, but wouldn't work on uh, Homo economicus, those perfectly rational creatures that populate economics textbooks. (laughs) Yeah. But not Earth. Okay, so let's back up. Richard Thaler, who, by the way, teaches at the University of Chicago. Booth School of Business. Is a behavioral economist whose deceptively simple idea. Make it easy. Has been used by governments and advertisers and businesses to gently alter the decisions we all make every day. You know, I suggested this idea in a paper I wrote nearly 20 years ago. Now, back then... Nobody paid much attention to it. Richard was known, still is, in fact, as an economist with ideas that are sometimes a little unusual. Uh, yeah, I think that would be a polite way of putting it. <laughs> What's it? Oh, what would be the Crank, Crank would be, uh, okay, you know, a less polite way of putting it. Anyway, this idea, this paper that he wrote 20 years ago... Uh, just... Didn't sound very exciting. Suggesting various ways of increasing saving. Like for retirement. And this was one idea I threw out. Okay. At the time, a lot of companies had a hard time getting people to sign up for a 401k retirement plan because it was a pain. A participant had to fill out a bunch of forms, decide how much to save and how to invest it. And that could all be very daunting. But Richard knew there had to be a way to make it easier. And after some thought, He concluded the easiest way to get people to make the right choice was to reverse the choice. So an employee, when first eligible for the plan, gets a pile of forms and says, if you don't fill these out, we're going to enroll you in the plan at this saving rate and invest it this way. But feel free to opt out or choose to save more or invest it some other way. It's all up to you. But if you do nothing, this is what's going to happen. So it turned out it was pretty easy for a lot of people to do nothing. And when a company in Minnesota was one of the first to try out Richard's idea... The enrollment rate went from 49% to 86%. Wow. And that's the number of people who enrolled within the first year. That's amazing. Just just from a little tweet to say, you know, we're not going to make you opt in. We're going to make you opt out. That was the only change they made. Richard Thaler lives for stories like these. Another example... A study done out of Cornell University in 2013 found... That merely slicing up apples and putting them into a plastic bag greatly increases apple consumption by kids. By like 70% in schools where they tried this. And that's because we've made it easy. This idea that a small tweak to the way a choice is framed can actually change a person's decision, it might seem obvious. But Richard and his colleague, economist Cass Sunstein, were the first to suggest it could be used for good, to help us save for retirement, to eat healthier, to live better. And they called this idea nudge. You know, Cass Sunstein and I don't claim that we invented nudging. 
I, I, I sometimes suggest that Eve invented nudging with that apple. And we don't know whether the apple she offered to Adam was sliced, but people have been nudging since there have been people. Today on the show, nudge. Ideas about how small changes in the words we use or the way we think can have a huge impact on behavior and outcomes. Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein's book about this, by the way, is called Nudge. Richard will be back a little later in the show. But first to a story about how a simple nudge in thinking might help to tackle a huge public health problem. And the psychiatrist Judson Brewer discovered this idea in the middle of a quarter-life crisis. I broke up uh, with my fiance at the time, and we were starting medical school at the same place and was having trouble sleeping. And around that time, Judson came across a book about meditation. You might have heard of it. It's called Full Catastrophe Living. Seemed like the right title. <laughs> I started started reading it and actually uh, started listening to the cassette tapes uh, of guided meditation my first day of medical school. Coming to this period of sitting meditation practice with the firm intention to bring mindfulness to each moment. I think there was a basic breath awareness meditation. Focusing on feeling your belly as it expands gently on the in-breath. Also a body scan where you kind of scan through the body and pay attention to different sensations. Allowing the breath to remind you over and over again to be fully present. But as hard as Judson tried. My mind was not having any of this. My mind was used to thinking about this, thinking about that, getting its way. It was kind of like trying to tame a wild animal without knowing how to tame it. I would kind of yell at it and tell it to calm down, and it was having none of it. Judson was trying to force himself to relax. And it took years for him to figure out that that wasn't actually the way to clear his mind. It wasn't about this brute force methodology, and instead it was about finding the conditions that supported concentration. And so by simply focusing on what was going on in his mind and body and not trying to change anything, that's what actually helped him. Now, you might have heard of this approach. Some people call it mindfulness, and it has its origins in Buddhist philosophy. Anyway, it really helped Judson survive medical school. And eventually, he started his residency in psychiatry. I'd been practicing mindfulness about probably about six or seven years at that point. And during his residency, he started to notice something interesting about his patients, specifically those struggling with addiction. In particular, my patients who had addictions were speaking the same language as the Buddhist psychologists that I'd been studying. So, for example, they would talk about craving and clinging, attachment, getting caught up in their drugs. And the Buddhist psychologists were describing the same process where we get caught up in a lot of different things. And I could not believe that this was a coincidence, so I started looking into it a little bit more. Judson wondered, could being mindful actually help curb addiction? Instead of trying to fight it, what if he could get his patients to simply notice what was happening? Here's Judson Brewer on the TED stage. In my lab, we studied whether mindfulness training could help people quit smoking. Now, just like trying to force myself to pay attention to my breath, we dropped a bit about forcing and instead focused on being curious. In fact, we even told them to smoke. What? Yeah, we said, go ahead and smoke. Just be really curious about what it's like when you do. What kind of things did you tell them to pay attention to? So first, we trained them to really notice what their bodies felt like. So we trained them in a technique called the body scan, where we helped them notice what physical sensations felt like, notice what cravings felt like, notice what anger felt like, and all these other triggers uh, for drug use. And what did they notice? Oh, here's an example from one of our smokers. She said, mindful smoking smells like stinky cheese and tastes like chemicals. Yuck! Now, she knew cognitively that smoking was bad for her. That's why she joined our program. What she discovered just by being curiously aware when she smoked was that smoking tastes like 
she moved from knowledge to wisdom. She moved from knowing in her head that smoking was bad for her to knowing it in her bones. And the spell of smoking was broken. She started to become disenchanted with her behavior. And this is the paradoxical nudge, which is we don't have to convince them that smoking is bad for them. What we could do is just simply have them drop into their own sensations and they would start to become disenchanted with the behavior simply by paying attention. And it turned out that smokers who practiced mindfulness were twice as likely as those treated with just medication not to start smoking again. And it wasn't just a temporary fix. The mindfulness group saw a greater reduction in smoking for several weeks after the study. Now, the prefrontal cortex, that youngest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective, it understands on an intellectual level that we shouldn't smoke. And it tries its hardest to help us change our behavior, to help us stop smoking, to help us stop eating that second, that third, that fourth cookie. Unfortunately, this is also the first part of our brain that goes offline when we get stressed out, which isn't that helpful. Now, we can all relate to this in our own experience. We're much more likely to do things like yell at our spouse or kids when we're stressed out or tired, even though we know it's not going to be helpful. We just can't help ourselves. And this is what mindfulness is all about, seeing really clearly what we get when we get caught up in our behaviors, becoming disenchanted on a visceral level, and from this disenchanted stance, naturally letting go. This isn't to say that, poof, magically we quit smoking, but over time, as we learn to see more and more clearly the results of our actions, we let go of old habits and form new ones. Essentially, it's like getting your brain to reframe the experience. Yes, it is like getting the brain to reframe the experience, yet it reframes it naturally by just seeing clearly. So I think of it as we wear these glasses of subjective bias. So each time we do some behavior out of positive or negative reinforcement, we actually reinforce a view that we have of the world. So if I smoke every time that I'm stressed out, I wear the glasses of, hey, I got to go smoke when I'm stressed. Well, when we take off those glasses and really see clearly what we're getting, you know, we get nudged in the other direction just by seeing it. So if you don't smoke or stress eat, maybe the next time you feel this urge to check your email when you're bored or you're trying to distract yourself from work, or maybe to compulsively respond to that text message when you're driving, see if you can tap into this natural capacity. Just be curiously aware of what's happening in your body and mind in that moment. It will just be another chance to perpetuate one of our endless and exhaustive habit loops, or step out of it. Instead of see text message, compulsively text back, feel a little bit better, notice the urge, get curious, feel the joy of letting go, and repeat. Thank you. Judson Brewer is an addiction psychiatrist at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. You can see his full talk at TED.com. More ideas about nudging in just a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour, from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible. Pharma, representing America's biopharmaceutical companies and researchers like Paul Neoy, who searches for the genetic causes of heart disease. So a lot of the work that I do is really involved in trying to understand just the basics of, of why people get sick. And we do that by actually studying their genomes. So we try and identify differences amongst individuals that make them more or less likely to get a disease. It's really important that we have an understanding of what are the genes that are actually involved in the disease. So we can design drugs that can target those genes and then hopefully treat the disease. It's very motivating to think about the impact that your work could have. So despite how hard it is to actually do what we do, there's a real desire to help people. To hear more from researchers like Paul about the problems they try to solve, visit goboldly.com slash listen.
Invisibilia is back for a new season with new stories about small personal battles. I'm a different person now. You're fake. And huge cultural issues. This is probably going to get somebody killed. So tune in for Invisibilia Season 4. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on today's show, we're exploring how sometimes a nudge, a tiny change to the way we behave or to the way we think, can lead to big changes. Can you um, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Okay. Uh, My name is Carol Dweck. I'm a professor of psychology at Stanford, and I'm the author of Mindset. So a part of Carol's research focuses on the idea that cues we get from the people around us, some of them subtle, some of them not so much, have the power to change our mindset. For instance, My sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Wilson, seated us around the room in IQ order. Wow. (laughs) That's brutal. It's brutal. Yeah. And the thing was that, of course, the kids were totally anxious all the time. A new girl walked into the class in the middle of the year, and instead of thinking, oh, maybe she'll be my friend, I thought, oh, I hope she doesn't have a higher IQ. Wow. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, it just kind of warped all your values. Of course, sorting children according to their IQ is more of a push than a nudge. And for Carol, looking back, she realized how profoundly it made her crave success and fear failure. And so I didn't ever want to go out of my comfort zone and try things that I might not succeed at. For example, my elementary school wanted to send me to the citywide spelling bee. But I thought, wait a minute, I'm already a winner here. Why should I go there and become a loser? So I restricted my world just to things I was sure I could do well at. With this in mind, when Carol became a psychologist, and as she explained on the TED stage, she decided to design experiments to find out how children respond to challenges. So I gave 10-year-olds problems that were slightly too hard for them. Some of them reacted in a shockingly positive way. They said things like, I love a challenge, or, you know... I was hoping this would be informative. They understood that their abilities could be developed. They had what I call a growth mindset. But other students felt it was tragic, catastrophic. From their more fixed mindset perspective, their intelligence had been up for judgment, and they failed. And in study after study, they have run from difficulty. So first of all, can you explain um, this concept of, of growth mindset? Well, let's start with the fixed mindset, which is the idea that your talents and abilities are just fixed. It's the idea that some people have a lot and some people have less, and that's the way it's always going to be. A growth mindset is the idea that Talents and abilities can be further developed through hard work, good strategies, asking for help and input from others. It's not that everyone's the same, but it's that everyone can grow their abilities. So how do you, like, what kind of thing can nudge a kid into one mindset or or, or another? We have studied a lot of things now that create a growth or a fixed mindset in kids. The first thing we studied was the praise that adults give to children. And we found, contrary to popular wisdom, that when you praise intelligence, it backfires. It puts kids into a fixed mindset. And right away, they don't want a challenging task. But If the adult praises the child's process, the effort or strategy, and ties it to the learning they've done or the success they've achieved, then we're putting kids into more of a growth mindset. Okay, so so like when a parent or a teacher says to a kid, you know, oh, you're so smart, you're so talented, Mm -hmm. um, that is actually not a good thing. But but if we say to kids, hey, that was a really great effort, you know, you're improving, that's like just that small change in language can, can actually change the way a kid thinks about him or herself? 
yes. Just saying, I like those strategies and you improved or that was really hard. You stuck to it and you mastered it. Just tying that process to their progress, their learning, their outcome teaches them they can grow their skills in that way. I heard about a high school in Chicago where students had to pass a certain number of courses to graduate, and if they didn't pass a course, they got the grade, not yet. And I thought that was fantastic, because if you get a failing grade, you think, I'm nothing, I'm nowhere. But if you get the grade not yet, you understand that you're on a learning curve. It gives you a path into the future. We recently teamed up with game scientists from the University of Washington to create a new online math game. In this game, Students were rewarded for effort, strategy, and progress. The usual math game rewards you for getting answers right, right now. And we got more effort, more engagement over longer periods of time, and more perseverance when they hit really, really hard problems. Just the words yet or not yet we're finding give kids greater confidence. You know, there's so many situations where, where kids could think, you know, I, I'm just no good at this, right? That, that I'm not talented. But, but we kind of condition them that way, right? Exactly. We condition them to show that they have talents and abilities all the time. And we think this is the, the road to their success. But in truth, the road to their success is learning how to think through problems, learning how to bounce back from failures. These are the things that create contributions to society. So as a, as a parent, like, would it, would it have a material impact on my own kids, for instance, you know, on the way they kind of approach challenges? If I were to, like, instead of saying, oh, you know, you're such a great reader, but to say, uh, I'm really proud that you read that book. You know, I wouldn't say I'm really proud because it makes it yours. Then the next book they'll read to make you proud rather than because they value it or enjoy it. I would say, tell me about that book you read. That's really exciting. Wow, you're going to completely change the way I parent. You know, everything sends a message. Just a few different words, sometimes one different word conveys a whole different world of meaning. Yeah. So I'm just amazed at how such a small nudge, right, like like framing, mm-hmm. can, can have such a powerful effect. Yes, it does. They're just different ways of seeing the self. Where Am I this fixed creature that has to look good all the time and validate myself? Or am I this dynamic, growing person who has this infinite, undetermined future that I can work toward. Does this struggle and confusion mean I'm dumb? Or does this struggle and confusion mean I'm growing my brain, I'm making those neural connections stronger and getting smarter? They're two different worlds, and we can choose which one we want to inhabit. You obviously study study children, can is it do do you think it's possible for adults to like retrain themselves to develop more of a of a growth mindset? Absolutely. What we're finding informally is that people can identify their fixed mindset triggers. So when you're out of your comfort zone, does a voice say, "Watch out, don't go there." <laughs> You'll unmask your deficiencies when you're struggling. Does that voice say, you can still get out? Uh, So it's not about crushing the fixed mindset voice. It's about working with it. You know, you can say, I'd really like to take this challenge. Will you come along with me? Can, Can you get on board? Can I count on you to collaborate? Just kind of co-opt it, make it work with you toward your goals. I mean, 
for a lot of people, the idea that by simply reframing the way they think about their own potential, that could actually change things in a big way is kind of hard to accept, right? Because a lot of people, they believe that they have limited capabilities. Right. And I'm not saying we have unlimited capabilities. I'm saying we have no idea. And I've learned that, too. I knew I was changing when I heard a voice in my head say, this is hard. This is fun. It's exciting to go from the girl in Mrs. Wilson's sixth grade class who was afraid to make a mistake to someone who is exhilarated at taking on the hardest unknown questions. Carol Dweck, she's a professor of psychology at Stanford. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. Speaking of nudging kids, do you remember when you were a kid and then trying something that you you weren't very good at and then just completely quitting? Yes. What what was it? Gymnastics. (laughs) What, What happened? I just, I couldn't do a cartwheel. Hmm. And then I just stopped doing it. And I work, it's, it's funny, it's like even at age 40, I, it sits with me. Maybe you can relate to Reshma Sajani. When Reshma was young, she would gravitate to things that she was naturally good at. I feel like when I was young, if I didn't do something right the first, second, third, or fourth time, I would get frustrated and I would give up. And then I would go do the thing that I was good at. And Reshma says for her, for a lot of girls, That was okay. So maybe if you have a 10-year-old and she's taking gymnastics and she's horrible at it, you'll pull her out and you'll put her in softball. Yeah. So she never goes through the process of knowing what it's like to be really bad at gymnastics. Whereas Reshma says, think about how we treat boys, how we almost expect them at some point or another to be really bad at something. You know, as I've been thinking about with my son, you know, he's 14 months old. He's not walking yet. And everyone's like, well, boys do everything late, right? Boys talk late. Boys walk late. Boys crawl late. Boys don't do well in school, right? Not in middle school, not in high school, not in college. But then how did they end up running the world? I think the thing is, is that from a very young age, we start shielding our girls. Today, Reshma runs an organization dedicated to not doing that but rather to nudging girls toward risks and to learn from failure. We'll hear more about that in a few minutes. But first, here's a little bit from Reshma's TED Talk. So many women I talk to tell me that they gravitate towards careers and professions that they know they're going to be great in, that they know they're going to be perfect in. And it's no wonder why. Most girls are taught to avoid risk and failure. They're taught to smile pretty, play it safe, get all A's. Boys, on the other hand, are taught to play rough, swing high, crawl to the top of the monkey bars, and then just jump off headfirst. And by the time they're adults, and whether they're negotiating a raise or even asking someone out on a date, they're habituated to take risk after risk. They're rewarded for it. It's often said in Silicon Valley, no one even takes you seriously unless you've had two failed startups. In other words, we're raising our girls to be perfect, and we're raising our boys to be brave. Some people worry about our federal deficit, but I I worry about our bravery deficit. Our economy, our society, we're just losing out because we're not raising our girls to be brave. In the 1980s, psychologist Carol Dweck looked at how bright fifth-graders handled an assignment that was too difficult for them. She found that bright girls were quick to give up. The higher the IQ, the more likely they were to give up. Bright boys, on the other hand, found the difficult material to be a challenge. They found it energizing. They were more likely to redouble their efforts. What's going on? Well, at the fifth-grade level, girls routinely outperform boys in every subject, including math and science. So it's not a question of ability. The difference is in how boys and girls approach a challenge. And it doesn't just end in fifth grade. 
An HP report found that men will apply for a job if they meet only 60% of the qualifications, but women? Women will apply only if they meet 100% of the qualifications. 100%. This study is usually invoked as evidence that, well, women need a little more confidence. But I think it's evidence that women have been socialized to aspire to perfection, and they're overly cautious. Even when we're ambitious, even when we're leaning in, that socialization of perfection has caused us to take less risks in our careers. And so, those 600,000 jobs that are open right now in computing and tech, women are being left behind, and it means our economy is being left behind on all the innovation and problems women would solve if they were socialized to be brave instead of socialized. To be perfect, and Reshma knows this because again, she was that girl—the girl who always tried to be perfect. She went to Yale Law School, public policy school at Harvard, and followed that up with jobs at big law firms and hedge funds. For 33 years, I had made a series of choices based on what I thought I should do to quote have the perfect resume, the perfect credential, right, the perfect exterior, and it was killing me inside. Even though Reshma seemed to be successful, she was feeling totally empty. So, around 2010, she decided she wanted to help people. Because I believe that people can still make a difference, and that we need to have new leadership and new ideas. Washington is fundamentally broken, and Reshma decided to run for Congress in her New York City district against a powerful and entrenched incumbent. And Carolyn Maloney, who is a veteran incumbent in、uh, New York. Has got a primary challenge from Reshma Sajani. So, did people think you were crazy? Everybody, consultants told me I was crazy. Like other, you know, female leaders told me I was crazy. I'm sure there were friends who thought I was nuts. But she did it anyway, and she lost pretty badly. Oof, it's brutal. But the whole experience it made Reshma realize she didn't have to be perfect. That. She could take a big risk, fail, and recover. You know, I let myself cry and 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 to feel horrible and be depressed, and but I also like kept thinking for me about like I'm going to help people, and how am I going to do that? And so Reshma started to think about all the people she met while running for Congress, and she got an idea. I mean, I'd be in a campaign trail, and you'd visit schools and talk to parents, and I would see. Dozens of boys that were clamoring to be next Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. Like you would go to computer labs at schools. Yeah, I'd go visit their science classes or their computer science classes or their robotics classes and talk to teachers. And I would see like boys and boys and boys and boys. Just and boys. boys. Just boys. And I was like, where are the girls? Yeah. I was like, what's going on? Reshma Sajani returns in just a moment with her idea for nudging more girls into those computer labs. And why she thinks that that could lead to more women in Congress, in C-level suites, and in Silicon Valley. So by the end, you are a master of failure. Then you feel like, wow, like I've been taught how to take risks. I'm Guy Raz. Our show today, Nudge. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone! Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage. To get started, go to RocketMortgage.com/ideas. Jessica, Equal Housing Lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org number thirty thirty. Thanks also to Stonyfield Organic. If you like organic stuff and your kids like yummy stuff, Stonyfield makes it easy with a whole bunch of organic yogurt treats like convenient cups, pouches, smoothies, and tubes. They're always ready to go. Best of all, Stonyfield is made without the use of toxic, persistent pesticides, artificial hormones, antibiotics, or GMOs. If you're ready for yum, visit Stonyfield.com.
Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A, a show where people gather to speak freely. You might learn something new, hear things that challenge you, and on Friday, we review the week's top stories. You'll find the 1A podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, Nudge. Ideas about how small tweaks can often change human behavior and the choices we make. And we've been hearing from Reshma Sajani, whose idea is that for too long, we've been nudging boys and only boys toward computers. Some people have big plans after school. You know what Elliot's going to do? Jeff, too. In the 80s is when you started marketing the personal computer as a boy's toy. Hmm. Elliot's at work on a book report using Scripsit on Radio Shack's Color Computer 3. It hooks up to his TV. And Jeff's at his Radio Shack Color Computer 3 playing the newest football game. Okay, it does not take a lot of time on YouTube to find computer ads from the 80s that are all about boys. So even though you bought it to help you work at home, your kid will want to use it for his own homework. Of course, if all else fails, there's one last thing you can try. Get him an apple of his own. And, you know, when you talk to entrepreneurs, they'll say my father or my mother gave me a computer when I was 12 years old and I tore it apart and boom, I created Facebook. And now I'm a genius. Right? And now I'm a genius. And so culture highly influenced young girls and parents about career options for young girls. And so in 2012... Reshma started a company called Girls Who Code to teach high school girls how to code and how to get comfortable with imperfection. Here's Reshma on the TED stage. Coding, it's an endless process of trial and error, of trying to get the right command in the right place, with sometimes just a semicolon, making the difference between success and failure. Code breaks, and then it falls apart, And it often takes many, many tries till that magical moment when what you're trying to build comes to life. It requires perseverance. It requires imperfection. We immediately see in our program our girls' fear of not getting it right, of not being perfect. Every Girls Who Code teacher tells me the same story. During the first week when the girls are learning how to code, a student will call her over, and she'll say, I don't know what code to write. The teacher will look at her screen, and she'll see a blank text editor. If she didn't know any better, she'll think that her student spent the past 20 minutes just staring at the screen. But if she presses undo a few times, she'll see that her student wrote code and then deleted it. Instead of showing the progress that she made, she'd rather show nothing at all. Perfection or bust. When we teach girls to be brave, they will build incredible things. And I see this every day. Take, for instance, the Syrian refugee who dares show her love for her new country by building an app to help Americans get to the polls. Or a 16-year-old girl who built an algorithm to help detect whether a cancer is benign or malignant, in the off chance that she can save her daddy's life because he has cancer. These are examples of thousands, thousands of girls who've been socialized to be imperfect, who've learned to keep trying, who've learned perseverance. And whether they become coders or the next Hillary Clinton or Beyonce, they will not defer their dreams. That's just incredible. Um, So at this point, how many girls have have gone through the program? So by the end of this year, we'll cumulatively have reached 40,000 girls. Do you know if any of these girls have gone on to study computer science in college? Yes. So 90% of our graduates are going on to major or minor in computer science. I mean, if you think of, of like a line of code as this precise thing, and you change just one thing in that line of code, it's a completely different language. And it's almost like like your nudge, right? Like your nudge is just changing one semicolon. And and the result of that is you're saying to girls, you don't have to be perfect. Like, this is fine. You can totally, like, mess this up, and it's okay. And who knows what the nudge is going to lead you to, right? 
Like, had I not run that race, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. And, like, for our girls, like, had you not learned how to code and, like, sat through that exercise of utter frustration, like, you're on a completely different path now. Yeah. Because it's a simple change. It's not actually that hard, right? No, it's not that hard at all. And I think you're right. It's like a nudge that can have massive consequences. I mean, this is like the big secret. You can convert girls pretty quickly. Yeah. Like, you just have to show them what it is and what they can do with it and how they can make a difference. And they're like, I love it. I mean, you can, like, close the gender gap in our lifetime. It's absolutely possible and doable. Reshma Sajani is the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. You can see her entire talk at ted.npr.org. So earlier in the show, we heard from Richard Thaler, the University of Chicago economist behind the idea of using a nudge for good. He even wrote a book called Nudge, which, to be clear, is different than being a nudge. A nudge is uh, somebody who's a pest. Uh, can a, a nudge uh, nudge somebody, though, to do, to do the right thing? Uh, well, they, they could, but mm. the thing about nudging is you absolutely want to avoid being a nudge. Anyway, Richard is often noticing all kinds of nudges that happen every day. So actually, I, I heard a story on NPR yesterday mm-hmm. talking about this horrible disease in Africa called the guinea worm. This was actually a crazy story NPR reporter Jason Bobian did about guinea worms. If you're not familiar with them, they're like this long piece of spaghetti that erupts from under a person's skin, and it's usually on the foot or their leg. It causes vomiting, diarrhea, horrible skin ulcers. There's no cure. It can lead to paralysis. There's no pill. In fact, the only way to get rid of the worm is to pull it out. And I won't go into any details. But here's the real problem. Days before the guinea worm emerges, it causes this horrible burning feeling in the limb it's infected. And so a natural tendency is to go run into the closest body of water. Hmm. Whereupon these worms leap out into the water and dispense thousands of larvae that gets into the drinking water. And for years, guinea worms had been spreading just like this. They got released into the water, people drank the water, they then got infected, and the cycle continued over and over. Now, it turns out that they used to kill millions of people, and so far this year there have only been three deaths. In fact, over the past 30 years, guinea worm disease has been virtually eradicated. And the tweak, the nudge was basically persuading infected people not to go into the water. Now, that might sound simple, but the underlying approach was actually quite new because it required a change in thinking, a change that forced public health workers to stop treating it as a medical problem, but rather as a human behavior problem. So if we think about big problems like climate change or corruption, just about any human problem, They are at their heart behavioral. And so even if we're just dumb economists, we need to be thinking about this from a behavioral perspective. Which is exactly how another economist is approaching a different global health crisis. Richard Thaler actually used to be his professor. I corrupted him when he was an undergraduate at Cornell. Sendil (laughs) Mulianthan is now a professor himself. I've known Richard um, at Harvard since I was an undergraduate, of all things. So I've known him for about 20 years. Sendil's work is mostly about questioning the small decisions we make and asking, are we really making a decision at all? Like, in other words, we never actually even have that moment where we choose. Hmm. Sometimes you'll notice, like, when people graduate and they get a job, they sort of say, okay, now I'm going to buy a house. It's not obvious that they said, should I buy a house? It's just, which house will I buy? Hmm. And that type of sort of gliding over very important choices is quite interesting. In his TED Talk, Sendell tells the story of another choice, but one that has life or death consequences. It's actually a global health problem much more deadly than guinea worm disease. So this uh, incident that I'm going to describe really began with some diarrhea. Now, we've known for a long time the cause of diarrhea. 
For us, it's a problem, the people in this room. For babies, it's deadly. They lack nutrients, and um, diarrhea dehydrates them. And so, as a result, there's a lot of death, a lot of death. In India in 1960, there was a 24% child mortality rate. Lots of people didn't make it. Uh, this is incredibly unfortunate. One of the big reasons this happened was because of diarrhea. Now, there was a big effort to solve this problem, and there was actually a big solution. And this solution has been called by some potentially the most important medical uh, advance this century. Now, the solution turned out to be simple. And what it was, was oral rehydration salts. Many of you have probably used this. It's brilliant. It's a way to get sodium and glucose together so that when you add it to water, the child is able to absorb it, even during situations of diarrhea. Remarkable impact on mortality. It looks like the technological problem is solved. But if you look, even today, there are about 400,000 diarrhea-related deaths in India alone. What's going on here? Well, the easy answer is, we just haven't gotten those salts to those people. That's actually not true. If you look in areas where these salts are completely available, the price is low or zero, these debts still continue abated. Maybe there's a biological answer. Maybe these are the debts that simple rehydration alone doesn't solve. That's not true either. Many of these debts are completely preventable. And this is what I want to think of as the disconcerting thing, what I want to call the last mile problem. Okay, so the last mile problem? This is where the concept of nudge often runs into a roadblock. The last mile problem is this um, interesting thing that we see in social policy. It has to do with the fact that there will be some core problem that we'll find some technical solution to, like a real solution. Um, but what you neglect is there's this last little bit, which is the annoying part. It's not the science part, it's the human part. It's just a thing we under-resource. We just almost have this view of, you know, what is it from Field of Dreams? Build it and they will come. Yeah. And, and so with so many of these um, problems, we have a build it and they will come attitude. We'll, get, we'll make the vaccine, we'll make the high-yielding crop, we'll make this, and then the problem will solve itself. And in India, that was the story with rehydration salts and the last mile problem. Sendil says many women surveyed in rural India simply didn't know that when a child has diarrhea, you need to increase fluids, not reduce them. In India, 35 to 50% say reduce. Think about what that means for a second. 35 to 50% of women, they are actually making their child more likely to die through their actions. How is that possible? Well, one possibility, and I think that's how most people respond to this, is to say, that's just stupid. I don't think that's stupid. I think there's something very profoundly right in what these women are doing. And that is, you don't put water into a leaky bucket. So think of the mental model that goes behind reducing the intake. The model is intuitively right. It just doesn't happen to be right about the world. See, what's really puzzling and frustrating about the last mile to me is that the first 999 miles are all about science. No one would say, hey, I think this medicine works. Go ahead and use it. We have testing. We go to the lab. We try it again. We have refinement. But you know what we do on the last mile? Oh, this is a good idea. People will like this. Let's put it out there. The amount of resources we put in are disparate. We put billions of dollars into fuel-efficient technologies. How much are we putting into energy behavior change in a credible, systematic, testing way? You know, in a lot of ancient medicine, they would say that if you have a fever, we should put you into cold water. Right. Now, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Like, it's really a smart idea. Except it just happens to be a terrible idea. <laughs> you have a fever, your body is under, like, so much duress, what the hell are we doing putting you in cold water? But it just goes to say, when you have a lay belief about what's happening, that's what drives your choice. How can you know anything but your lay belief? And in this sense, it's like, the problem is the problem of choosing. So for example, I go to the gym like every day. And I don't think this has to be about every day. It can be about Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It can be Saturday, Sunday. But for me, one of the ways that I'm able to go to the gym every day is because I go to the gym every day. Now that sounds stupid, but it's because I don't have a choice. Like yeah. if I woke up in the morning and I had to choose, I guarantee you I would not go to the gym. Yeah. I'd be like, I am tired. Today is not the day. Let's do tomorrow. Yeah. 
much like with brushing my teeth, I don't, I don't really choose to brush my teeth. I'm just like, yeah, I'm really tired, but I guess I got to brush my teeth. Once it's just a thing with a rule and not a choice, it changed everything. So, so, so it's like nudging people to, to do the right thing or, or be more rational about their health or whatever is not always about giving them more information, right? It's, it's about understanding the choice. That's right. It's not, that's a good way of putting it. It's not about information. It's, it's about finding what is the psychological blockage, so to speak. I mean, I think this is one of the things where, for me personally, it's been sort of a pretty long journey in that I think I started off feeling like, oh, yes, these are all examples of irrational behavior. And that's a bias that I think both comes from economists, because there's a rational model, this is irrational, but also just from human nature. You're like, dude, why can't you just take your pill? Like, yeah. that's just stupid. Right. But I actually think that perspective is highly mistaken. And I actually think it's one of the reasons that it proves harder to find solutions. And I think I found that it's much more helpful to understand what's right about it because we know the bigger reference frame in which it looks stupid. You're on a diet and you're having your fifth cookie. That's just stupid. Right. We understand what's wrong with it. But if you're going to change it, you have to understand what feels right about it in that moment, at that time, because that's, that's the key to unlocking it. We're on the verge of a whole new social science. It's a social science that recognizes, much like science recognizes the complexity of the body, biology recognizes the complexity of the body, will recognize the complexity of the human mind. The careful testing, retesting, design, are going to open up vistas of understanding complexities, difficult things, and those vistas will both create new science and fundamental change in the world as we see it in the next uh, 100 years. All right, thank you very much. Sendel Milianthan, he's a MacArthur Fellow and a professor of economics at Harvard. You can check out his entire talk at TED.com. And the latest book from his old professor and original nudger Richard Thaler is called Misbehaving. Thanks for listening to our show, Nudge, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, you can go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Casey Herman, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Rachel Faulkner. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at tedradiohour at npr.org. We'd love to hear from you. And you can follow us on Twitter. It's at tedradiohour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.